You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 38, The Kansas Campaign. Thanks for joining me. I have something special for you this episode. A few weeks ago, I was in Kansas City, Missouri, where I was able to visit a special exhibit at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art called Napoleon, Power and Splendor. It's a fantastic museum, and the exhibit is a lot of fun if you're a Napoleon fan so I highly recommend making the trip if you can. I also attended a lecture on Napoleon by Dr. Mark Gerges, who's a professor at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, not far outside Kansas City. The next day, I went out to Fort Leavenworth and recorded an interview with Dr. Gerges and two of his colleagues from the Command and General Staff College, Dr. Jonathan Abel and Dr. John Kuhn. These guys are the cream of the crop when it comes to the military history of the Napoleonic era. We are very fortunate they agreed to sit down and share some of their expertise with us. You might notice the audio quality isn't quite to the same standard as other episodes. As you may have already noticed, I'm not a sound engineer by trade, and we ran into some difficulties recording. For one thing, I had to redub myself after the fact. So, sorry in advance, but I think everything should be audible. Anyway, without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Gerges, Dr. Abel, and Dr. Kuhn from November 9th, 2018, the 219th anniversary of Napoleon's seizure of power on 18 Brumaire. First off, why doesn't everyone introduce himself? Mark Gerges, Department of Military History graduate of Florida State and the Institute of Napoleon and the French Revolution. John Kuhn, uh, graduate of Kansas State, work here at the Department of Military History, and like Mark, a student of Napoleon and the French Revolution. Jonathan Abel, UNT graduate, also at the Command and General Staff College, and 18th century and Napoleonic scholar. In our narrative on the show, we just finished the first Italian campaign. Why are military historians so interested in this event? How do you guys teach it? Well, we don't directly teach the uh, 1796 uh, campaign, but we do. I mean, the campaigns in Napoleon overall um, is a key part of our first block of in- instruction. And we look at the changes of the French army resulting from the French Revolution and how that is then translated into some sort of operational and tactical uh, success. And then um, the other portion is why is the French army in Napoleon unable to continue that success and why does... These, these amazing, uh, what he does in the beginning, 
start to fail? Why does everyone else learn from him? As Mark said, we don't necessarily teach it directly. But I think the reason people like the campaign so much is, it, as Chandler has written about, it's an excellent microcosm of the Napoleonic method. And you get that, you get that sense of kind of the nascent genius. So you see it on the battlefield, but you're starting to see the elements of what he's going to do later. So you start to see, oh, he's not just another Pichigrew. He's not just another Moreau. He's not just another Jordan. He has aspirations that are higher. And so he's interested in Italy. He's interested in, in the campaign. He's interested in the operations. But he's more than a Messina. He's more than an Udino. He's more than an Ogero. He's somebody who's focused on, hey, the French have been trying to poke across the Alps for generations. He actually does it now. And it's not just, let's beat the Austrians. Let's win this war. It's, can we project power into the Papal States? Can we reform the kingdom of Naples that's been a mess for hundreds of years. Can we bring some order to Italy? And while he's doing that, he's pushing the Austrians back. And he's also, you know, we, we can debate the degree to which he's supporting the French government, but the directory lasts as long as it does, in part because of Bonaparte's campaign in Italy. And so I think that the, the effectiveness of the first Italian campaign not, you know, not just from a military perspective, but from the kind of holistic perspective, is that it shows us where this is all headed. And again, he's not, you know, this is happening all across the front. You know, French, French armies are pushing into every enemy territory. They've already knocked Prussia out of the war. They've already knocked Spain out of the war. They're pushing across the Rhine. But it's this one guy. He's just, he has a higher view than everybody else. And I think that's, you know, the military part's important, but I think we start to see those other elements too. It's you have a truly strategic level thinker on the level of a Carnot, but somebody who's actually commanding an army. To kind of add to that, and it's something a lot of us do, is we, we sort of list, and John House and I put this together, and this is going to kind of abut what Abel just said. It's a great campaign to showcase the French Revolutionary Army. So in addition to sort of getting this view of the nascent genius of Napoleon Bonaparte and sort of his his different approach to warfare than many of his contemporaries <laughs> and peers, it it really does showcase a French Revolutionary Army in in a wonderful way with all of its goods and others, all of its goods and others. And again, the Army of Italy is a, a great example of that because they're sort of the forgotten front. They're the they're the sort of the second effort. You know, and there's tertiary efforts that we don't even ever talk about in in the Vendee and in in, in Holland sometimes and along the Spanish frontier before that frontier goes quiet. But the but the French army in Italy is it's a showcase for those. So what a lot of us do is we'll go, well, let's talk about what Napoleon didn't bring to the table. And so that that army of the first Italian campaign um, has all those attributes. Now, a lot of us don't directly say, well, these are all the attributes of the army of Italy. But we talk about your standard French Revolutionary Army, the fact that they've already got a mature doctrine. Their organizational piece has finally been figured out with the demi-brigades and with the combined arms division. The combined arms division is standard, all right? And so what we'll see in the first Italian campaign is the new stuff that we'll see will all be experimental. None of it will be institutionalized until later. And and we see uh, we see the problems with the French cavalry are still significant in this campaign. They, uh, 
but uh, uh, we'll see the leadership, the 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 guys with the batons in their knapsack, the former cabin boy Messena from Genoa, you know, uh, uh, sergeants and and bow sabers like Ojero, you know, who who are just adventurers, but they have worked their way up into the high command of the French army. Uh, and we see the Jacobin generals, you know, who, who are there. The, you know, I wouldn't, you know, a lot of the generals, I guess we can classify them as Jacobin generals, but we see the real Jacobin generals too. And, and we get to see some of the representatives on mission and members of the directory, you know, uh, in action. So it's, uh, so all of those things that the French, uh, French revolutionary has before Napoleon gets there, you get kind of get to see Napoleon married up with a full up French Revolutionary Army. Let's see what they can do. And ever going back to your original question about why is the, the professional military education so fascinating with this campaign, uh, uh, University of Kansas Press just published uh, in September a translation of Clausewitz's study of the 1796 campaign. Um, and it was done by Nick Murray at the Naval War College, and they use the 1796 campaign as a war game. It's one of the studies. Um, and, and part of it is because of Clausewitz's study as a historian, and looking at the history and then going back to where is he getting his ideas that's going to form the theory uh, when he actually publishes on war. And so, again, from a historian's point of view, it's a natural piece to actually go to. What is he looking at? How is he coming up with his ideas? Uh, because on war, Clausewitz uh, and Jeremy are both studied here uh, and looked at uh, across the military and the professional military uh, education system. Next is something I wanted to ask you all because I find myself kind of going back and forth on this issue. Are the contrasts between the revolutionary armies and an Ancien Regime army sometimes overstated? Obviously they were doing something different, but it seems like there were a lot of continuities as well. Yeah, so look at me. Like, <laughs> that's my area. Before I can do the against. Well, and, and, and the other thing I was going to say is my thoughts immediately go to, because of my research, um, the British Army uh, in the peninsula, which is an ancien regime army in almost every way um, you could possibly do. The, and, the, and the problems that Wellington has with senior leaders uh, and not really a clear doctrine, not forming permanent corps and all that kind of stuff. So you see uh, this transitional piece uh, uh, like, like you do. So I'm not sure... When you say, can you overstate it? I'm sure like anything, you can overstate um, that. But I don't think, um, I think the people at the time certainly didn't overstate it. They did see um, that threat. And again, this transitional piece, we always are talking about change. We think there's somehow a, a wall or something that has suddenly, you know, everything before this is this and afterwards it doesn't. And it's, it's, it's not, not that clear. I think the, the difficulty of this particular question and idea is something you run into constantly in historiography, which is a good portion of this was written by the revolutionaries. So if you look at the line that a kind of post-revolutionary historian will write, somebody like an Albert Segul or a, a Berto, what they write is... This is a radical change from what came before. By definition, it's a revolution. Everything must be different. Because the old regime was corrupt, because the old regime was wrong, because it was totalitarian and tyrannical, all of that, what we have birthed is new. There is an element of that. So the way we teach this period is, this is what we call a military revolution because we have added the elements of mass and nationalism to war. Now, 
that works because that's what's motivating the French. They have more people. They're motivated by patriotism, if not nationalism. We can parse that however we want. But on the other hand, we can't buy into the revolutionary rhetoric completely. And this is the difficulty. So if you look at the way people like Subul argue their arguments, it's straight out of a Robespierre speech. Sometimes literally it's out of a Robespierre speech. And what we have to realize is that's just simply not true. That there are far more continuities than changes, than punctuations. So when Napoleon fights, particularly the Austrians, the Piedmontese, they're, they're small, they have their own issues. The Piedmontese have never managed to stand on their own in a war. They only, you know, early 18th century, they, they won wars, but they had big allies. So when Napoleon's facing the old regime Austrian army, that army doesn't do poorly. You know, they nearly win at Arcola. They chew up the French again and again and again. I mean, they're, you know, the French have made no progress on that front until Bonaparte gets there after years of fighting. And he manages to rupture the equilibrium, but that's because he's a genius. He's Napoleon, and we're finding that out, right? What we fail to realize is the other powers have mobilized resources in different ways. So, yes, the French have their levees. They have their conscription system. But the Austrians also have a levy in Hungary. The Prussians always have discipline to fall back on, although they bow out of this war pretty quickly. You know, the British have their own versions. They have quality over quantity. That's kind of the British... British standard. You know, just pick a country and you can find an example of what we might call exceptionalism. And I think the trap that we can fall into is to, to, to essentially believe the revolutionary myth, that all of this is new, all of this has not changed, and it's surprising the degree to which that still impacts historiography. You know, I think, I think Abel's is right here, and he, he's kind of focusing on some of the other armies here and that you know we have to be real careful about how people have written about this army and its opponents we tend to get this sort of dichotomy as mark brought up we get the ancien regime army and we've got the new french armies and all the ancien regime armies get bundled into sort of one big bundle and the french are over here and and actually there are some french armies that are probably more progressive than other French armies. And that, a lot of that is a function of leadership. Well, leadership's a big deal. And again, the further you get away from Paris, the more things kind of look like the old way. It, yeah. So it's, it's, it, it varies. In, uh, and again, with the, with the opponents of Napoleon, and, and I was just thinking of uh, Gunther Rotenberg as, 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 as Abel was talking you know, the, the Habsburg army, the Kaiserlich army, is a fascinating army because it's not a bunch of Austrians. It's a bunch of Italians, Slovenians, Croats, Pandors, uh, Slovaks, Czechs, Poles. It's got everything in it, and it also has mercenary regiments in it. I mean, it's got one regiment that traces its lineage all the way back to the Teutonic Knights, the Hoken Deutschmeister regiment, which is named after the Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights. So these are, these are, each of these armies has sort of got its own character. And they, it's the idea that they're resistant to reform is also a sort of a false paradigm or it's a misleading paradigm. Uh, the Russian army, which Christopher Duffy writes so wonderfully about, particularly during this period, 
is a fascinating army. It, it, is, it is a new army. In many ways, it, in the early 18th century, it's one of the most revolutionary armies out there because it's, it's so odd. It's this bizarre amalgamation of, of different things that Peter the Great and Apraxin and, and Bestashev and all of these different Russian reformers have been trying to put together. And then they get, they get their Napoleon several, you know, decades earlier. Well, not decades earlier, but they have Suvorov, who is who doesn't fight the way the Europe, he's not European. You know, to think that these, that, that the Russian army is really a European army is kind of a, a misnomer. They, they practiced against the Turks. Yeah, they spend most of their time fighting sort of these non-Western foes. Then one more thing I wanted to say, and that's about the French army itself, which is there are still regiments in the French army that look a whole lot like they did under Louis and under, under the Bourbons. There, uh, and Elting talks about this in Swords Around the Throne. There are cavalry regiments that have this long lineage of being sort of these glorious mercenaries, particularly in the Hussars. And uh, that film, The Duelists, brings yeah. this out. You know, the guys who are in, I forget, I think it's the 5th Regiment of Hussars are, you know, they're all, a lot of these guys are the same guys who were in these regiments before the Revolution. And many of them fight Napoleon's reforms. There will be some Chasseurs Cheval regiments that will refuse to change from Hussar dress into Chasseurs Cheval dress because they just say that's not who we are. And, and so there's all these little things that are kind of being kept inside the French military as an institution, despite all this revolutionary fervor. They kind of keep some of these odd bits and pieces from the ancient regime that, that they're still with them. You know, and some of these guys go on to become the commanders and the marshals. You know, Augereau is a great example. He is a, he's an adventurer. He's a buccaneer, you know. So anyway, yeah, I think we make too much of the difference between the French armies and their opponents. Certainly the French armies are operating under a new paradigm, and particularly the mass army and the ideological component is, is, is especially powerful. I wouldn't say they're new, but I would say they're powerful eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. That's a good segue into my next question. How do you rate the armies of Napoleon's enemies? What was going on in other European militaries during the Napoleonic era? What year? What time period? Let's say the height of Napoleon's career, so from the consulate to 1805 or so. Yeah, the reason I ask that is if you're going to do with, like, the Prussians, certainly the Prussians of that time period, the Prussians of 1813, entirely different. Napoleon's comment about the beast have learned something uh, certainly shows the reforms at Memel uh, and how they're uh, uh, going. But, you know, it's always interesting, I guess, the kind of game is, is to, to match up, okay, who has the best cavalry, who has the best uh, you know, infantry, and... I uh, clearly think infantry would be British Army, and that's the bedrock of it, the cavalry, the French Army. 
you put the armies directly side by side and compare them, I don't know how useful that is without considering the commanders. And that's where the Napoleon, that, that's where that, uh, that, that piece comes in. It's cause, as John pointed out, the Subarev does amazing things. You know, the threat that to France in 1800 is he's heading uh, to Zurich. Certainly makes an army that sometimes doesn't get the respect it probably should. It plays a huge role. You know, your guys' thoughts are... I think the the difficulty, as, as Mark is getting at, is there's so many factors. You know, we are all huge fans of war games, and in fact, there's two shelves of war games next to us. Um, but in some ways, I think that viewpoint can be deceptive because it, it's reductionist. So what Mark is saying is excellent, and, and especially, so let's just take the, the microcosm of the 1805 campaign. If we look at the Austrian army of 1805, from rank and file through artillery, cavalry, light infantry especially, up to maybe the junior officer level, I think it's fair to say they're probably the second best army in France. But if you go much above that, if you get into the general officers, they're ancient. I think their average age is, what, 76, according to Rotenberg? They're incredibly unimaginative. They're stuck with their commanders being the emperor's brothers, whether it's Carl, the one who is skilled, or John, uh, the one who is not, or Ferdinand, the other one who is not. <laughs> and that, that and that's the difference. I mean, what, what Mark is getting at is an excellent point, because it's really, really easy to have a good army when you have a cadre of everyone from NCOs up to marshals who are practiced and skilled and, most importantly, merit being where they are, as opposed to you're the, the fourth of the five Habsburg brothers, so, hey, you get the army of Italy. <laughs> or you're you're the guy who says he has all the answers, so we're going to Leroy Jenkins the Austrian army into all. Uh, that didn't go well. So I think, I think you know, what, what John and Mark have said is, is incredibly important for people to realize. It's, there's almost two levels to this. So we can look at armies on a one-to-one basis. We can compare them on a unit-to-unit basis. Um, and I'm not so sure the Austrian and Cav- or excuse me, the Austrian artillery of 1805 doesn't beat the French. Mm. I don't know, because I obviously wouldn't have a fight like that. Uh, but I can tell you one thing that doesn't happen until 1809, which is a commander can beat the French. Mm. And that's Carl, and that's a very specific circumstance. Well, and that's too, exactly the same thing. The British army in the peninsula would have done terribly if it was in northern uh, northern Europe. Uh, during that most of that time period, I mean, it has to be in that time and that space. And I have to say, I, I really like the Leroy Jenkins and Mac <laughs> yeah. to, to think I'm yeah. stealing that one and using it, and that is wonderful. <laughs> I had never thought about it, but it works so perfectly. Works in Russia too. It works for Berkeley. About <laughs> Mac is trying to do. We're going to copy the things we can copy. Here's the plan. We're going. Yeah. Um, that's excellent. Well, I think the the other the other element that it's it's an interesting point um, Mark brought up, and feel free to push back on this. Um, but it's funny if you look at the way the French looked at their enemies. So they respected the Austrians. They didn't quite know what to make of the Prussians. They were afraid of them, and then they weren't. Yeah. Um, they had no regard for the British. From going back decades, the British are a joke. The British soldier is skilled. Everything else the British do is terrible. So the French are used to beating the British on every battlefield they can, most famously at Fontenoy. So at Fontenoy, the British soldier fights well. Commander's terrible. And so... The British actually change their really worldwide view of who and what they are in their army. They go from being a joke without an enlightenment type definition 
to being a military that's respected. And that has a lot to do with, as Mark pointed out, the, the use of the advantages and the force multipliers they had in the theater. I mean, from the French perspective, the peninsula is, is frustrating because what happens every time the French want to fight? The French run away. They do it three times. But in doing that, and of course in winning Waterloo, which you know anybody could have won, they they make a they make a name for themselves as these great soldiers. So we finally have that individual level quality translating upwards, and a lot of that has to do with Wellington. The fact that he builds that army over the course of, uh, of four and five years in a very very unique set of circumstances, I think, is the thing that makes a difference. Uh, and really allows him to, to, to rise up to have that kind of reputation. And and to use a contemporary counterexample, uh, look what happens when the British fight without Wellington. They get beaten by an American mm. Indian general. Yeah, and these are Wellington's troops. Right. They, they, they really are. Um, as John and Mark were talking about this, it occurred to me, so there's a common thread in what's going on with all of these armies during the period, um, and even before the period, and, and that's this... These armies are all factionalized, um, just as the French army itself is factionalized between the reformers, Guibert uh, and 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 Brissette and those guys, and and for each one of these armies, the Austrian army, the Russian army, less so the British army, but there are reform factions in the British army. John Moore is one of them, um, is part of that reform faction or the enlightened progressive guys. Yeah, the regimental system. Yeah, politics. the regimental system, the, the, the idea of the light infantry and, and the 43rd you know, regiment, all these other things that, that John Moore's involved with. And I want to focus, because the Austrian, so there's this story that's going on during the wars as the reform factions try to reform these armies. The Prussian army is in the midst of reform when it marches off the Yen and Auerstadt. They are trying to reform. They're reforming within the paradigm. A lot of people forget the chief of staff to uh, Brunswick at uh, Auerstadt is Scharnhorst. He's the head of the quartermaster general staff section, and he so he automatically becomes the chief of staff for the main army in the war against France. That's the way the Massenbach sets the whole system up. Uh, uh, Massenbach is an important person. So the Prussian army's got that too. And so you have to look at that. And a lot, I think a lot of people do know about the reforms that Mac tries to implement and the reforms that Charles tries to implement. Uh, the Prussian reform story is very, very well known, although I don't think the part pre-Jena Auerstadt is as well known as the part post with the Military Reform Commission. The army, though, that, that we're kind of giving short shrift in all of this is the Russian army. And, and, and as it turns out, the Russian army is going to be the army that breaks the Napoleonic system. But it is an army constantly torn by reform. And this is a function of the Romanovs. You have Catherine the Great. She has reformers. She has Potemkin. There's the famous Potemkin uniform. These uniforms that make sense. You know, we've got these kind of gaudy uniforms that don't make sense. We're going to bring in a system that makes sense. And we're going to have Potemkin, and, and we're going to have Suvorov, and we're going to have these Russians who are sort of the, the people that are looking to the West, this is Christopher Duffy's argument, trying to take what's best from the West and combine us with what's best in sort of this emerging Russian style of warfare in the modern era. But that goes back and forth, and it's a function of who's in charge. And when Paul comes in, Paul is like his, like his father. He's kind of a 
Prussophile. He he sort of he sort of and then he becomes a Francophile in this sort of this you know when everything collapses in 1799. But he undoes the Russian reforms, and and he sort of the Russian army that he inherits is a very very good army. And I've always thought about it. You know, what if Alexander decided he wanted to go to a ball in Krakow and stayed away from Austerlitz? You know, what if Kutuzov had decided to go ahead and fight Austerlitz like his forebears fought Zorndorf? And so, yeah, Napoleon throws some, you know, fancy, clever maneuvers. But at the end of the day, the Russian army is still standing there. They're just facing in the other direction and they haven't broken. So, uh, and that will happen to Napoleon two years later at Eilov. You know, he will run into that Russian army with stolid, unimaginative leadership and tons of artillery, and he will nearly break his army on it. So, uh, but the Russian army's going back and forth. The guy who's written best about this is probably, since Duffy, is of course Alexander Mukhobereshda, because he, he says we've got to look at the officer corps if we're going to study what these other armies are doing to understand that, you know, so why is the leadership the way it is in the Austrian army? Well, go read Gunther Rotenberg and some of the more recent stuff by the Austrian guys. Well, why is the Russian army the way it is? And a lot of it has to do with talent. The Russian army is a fascinating place, kind of like the Prussian army. They are careers open to talent. We always think about the French careers open to talent. Scarnhorse is Hanoverian. Ganais now is Saxon, okay? Moltke is Danish, all right? And so, so, and the Russian army's the same way. They're plundering these Germans. They're Lithuanians and Scottish wild geese and guys like that. But these, and these guys are in the Russian army. Yeah, yeah. And so, so these are all fascinating armies to study. I think we, we tend to see the French army and we get so fascinated by its brilliance and its really colorful characters in the French army that we forget that there's all these other really colorful characters in the other armies or with the British army. We get so focused on Wellington. We forget about John Moore. We forget about Charles Beresford. You know, we forget about all these other characters that are in the army. We forget about the grand old Duke, you know, the good old Duke of York and, 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 and the sort of the anti, you know, the anti Wellington faction inside the army. So, the armies are certainly a place to go study, but you got to be aware that there's there's a trajectory of reform, counter-reform, reaction, progress, and then reaction against the progress uh, that takes place in all of these armies. So, as scholars in this field, you guys really have your finger on the pulse of what's new in Napoleonic studies. Are there any areas of research that have you particularly excited? What are the next frontiers in the field? I'm gratified to say that my grad school colleague, Jordan Hayworth, who's now at the Air Command and Staff College, is going to start publishing uh, operational accounts of the Revolutionary Wars. Mm -hmm. Um, The last comprehensive accounts came out over a century ago. Those are the the Ramsey Weston Phipps um, accounts. And that is a a hugely lacking subfield. Um, You'd think those campaigns would have more coverage, but to my knowledge, there is not an operational account of the campaigns in the Pyrenees, which are very important because they did end a war, but nobody, nobody writes about them. Um, so that's, that's an area that i that immediately comes to mind. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of peripherally Napoleonic. But. Well, I was going to say, I, that really goes, when you, when you say Napoleonic, we focus so much on his campaigns and those big campaigns. And I think 
the 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 where is it coming from? What's the intellectual thought for it? What is the predecessors to the Grand Armée? Those type of things are finally getting some more, you know, just the examination. And those are the new publications. Like I mentioned, the Clausewitz one. Uh, he's now working on the eighteen hundred Clausewitz uh, translation. I mean, so those type of uh, predecessors are of where the idea is coming from, what has been done before is is kind of I think some of the really neat stuff that's coming out now. The uh, I can't help but give this a plug. I was going to go all Navy on you, and I will in just a second, <laughs> because we haven't talked much about that, because that's an area of new scholarship. But I have to mention <clears throat> Vanya Eftimova and the mm. biography of Marie von Clausewitz. So there's this new interest in biography of people of the period, that the older biographies just don't cut it anymore. Vanya was telling me there's one coming out of Boyenne, that's going to be coming out. Grohlman is a guy that needs a biography. So that's a really fascinating area. But with Vanya and her biography of the Countess von Brühl, Clausewitz's wife, the imperial countess, you know, who's sort of equal with all the other royalty of Europe because of her stature, is a wonderful thing because it's sort of opening the doors now to kind of looking at a broader panoply of personalities. Okay, now break, break, as we say in the Navy. Um <laughs> The, the, naval, the naval research field for this period, and I'm talking about just before the wars break out all the way until the end of the wars in 1815, is an area of wonderful study. More and more work is being done by wonderful scholars in France, in Great Britain, and in Holland, and these other places about what's going on in naval affairs. Normally, it's always been sort of this British story, you know, the British win battle after battle after battle, and then they win Trafalgar and have command of the sea for the rest of the war. And we don't really need to learn much more about it than that. And the hand really kind of did a good job in that. And why should we go back and look at it? But now, particularly uh, uh, from some of the scholars who were hosted by uh, All Souls for the John Hattendorf uh, Memorial a couple years ago in honor of John Hattendorf, the famous Ernest King professor at uh, the Naval War College, they did something called The Strategy in the Sea. And, and I reviewed that, and there were several essays in that that talked about after Trafalgar, what happens and how sort of they move to a sea control and convoys and, you know, what we don't need anymore are these big, large ships of the line, unless Napoleon manages, you know, to seize another fleet from somebody like the but Turks the, or the Napoleon's Russians. Napoleon's doing that, though. And he's, that's one of the things, he's, uh, yeah. Kenny Johnson, who works on the, on the yeah. French fleet, by 1811, 1812, they have rebuilt all the losses of Trafalgar. Um, and they have the ships, and they have the artillery and, and, and the men. They just don't have the experience. That's, they they that's don't the have the experience. And then they have this huge manpower problem mm -hmm. and this huge artillerist problem mm -hmm. that Napoleon has created in the 1812 campaign. Mm -hmm. That's an area ripe for research. Mm -hmm. But the area about what the British are doing with their shipbuilding and what do they do with command of the sea? And I mean, and for the next 10 years, the British Navy is on station, and the French still have a gear to course campaign that the British have to deal with, that in many ways is effective enough to force the British to honor it. They, the largest convoys prior to World War I will be during that last 10 years of the Napoleonic Wars, after Trafalgar, when the British have to convoy to protect their merchant fleets and their support for all their allies ashore in mainland Europe. And if you believe Francois Crusay... It leads directly to the British, what is it, the recession of 1810? Yes. So, yeah, that's... Which might even cause the assassination of the Prime Minister in right. 1812, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, so that's that's interesting. Yeah.
That actually touches directly on something else I wanted to ask, just because I've read very contradictory accounts of this topic. You know, you can read one book that shows all these statistics to say the French Corsair campaign was a complete joke and a wasted effort. And then another book will show you the very same stats to say it was actually hugely damaging. So, did the French efforts against British commerce have an impact or not? Personally, I come down on the it's having a huge effect. The only thing that saves Britain during this time period is the opening up of the Spanish colonies because of Spain's problems, and they're taking the money right out of the coffers of their ally. And then they wonder why the Spanish army is so ineffective, because they can't pay for it because the British are siphoning off. But it's only the opening up of the South American colonies that keeps Britain afloat. Um, the continental system's working. Yeah, and I, I think the, to, for my mind, the, the books to read on it are the Crusade Collection. I think it's called the Continental Blockade, where he actually goes to the ports in England and he looks through the records and he pages through year by year, month by month, and looks at imports, exports, earnings, and says, this gear de course has a measurable effect on the British economy. And I think this, this ties back to an answer we had earlier. It is very much in the interests of the British to say this is not affecting us. We are the masters of the sea. Look, yeah. we want Trafalgar. Look, we want that's all we need, right? Yeah, nobody <laughs> should Germany. ever try this strategy again. Right. It's, it's, we <laughs> all know it fails. Right. And and in reality <laughs> in reality, the victory was great and you know, the British are great at winning great victories at sea. But as John is pointing out, well, okay, let's not build any more ships to the line. Let's smuggle. And you know, that hurt Napoleon's continental system. But it also hurt the British more because the British don't have access to the kind of resources Napoleon has on the continent. And I don't know if this is true of the Napoleonic period. I know in later periods, um, Britain can't feed itself. That's a hugely important part of, of British strategy is that they have to secure the resources. You know, their burgeoning industrialization requires. They have to have access to markets. And what Mark is getting at, you know, with the Spanish and, you know, the, the Brazilian market, too, huge, you know, Portuguese market. Uh, the British the British essentially turned Portugal into a vassal state. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know the, the specific piece about whether they can feed themselves or not, but Wellington, once the War of 1812 starts and American merchants are cut off that, at that point, they're getting letters to be able to trade both with French merchants to bring French wine into Portugal um, for the army. Uh, which seems ironic, and also to allow Americans to go to North Africa to bring wheat into it. So if those were ice, you know, absolutely cut off, it would have been a huge, huge effect. And so, at least in that that front, they're kind of looking the other way to make it to make it work. Yeah, the the political economy that Mark mentioned about the benign neglect of the Spanish colonies, or the just the simple neglect, and the fact that an entire continent kind of opens up to Great Britain. And it's not just an entire continent. I mean, it's the colonies throughout the world. And if anybody should be well positioned to understand how that political economy works, it should be the British. If you've read Fred Anderson's uh, discussions in uh, The Crucible of War, particularly later in the book when he talks about Havana, and how, hey, you know, the, both the French and the Spanish colonies being conquered, the locals learn really quickly, gosh, this is, it's much, much better now that we can trade in this British system, you know, than it was under the mercantilist policies of, this, of the Spanish monarchy or the French monarchy. And if anybody could have learned that lesson, it, it would have been the British. So it makes absolute sense that that sort of thing, in many ways, does save the British. 
But, you know, it's not, it doesn't all go their way. I mean, they have some pretty disastrous military episodes at, at Buenos Aires and places like that that nobody ever studies. Or maybe I should say your standard Napoleonic reading audience doesn't really look at much. Ed, Esdale has done some of this in his international. Yeah, he has. Um, yeah. But it's, as, as John is suggesting, you know, there are surveys, but these are, these are areas that need to be examined in monographs. Anagraph, yeah. And, yeah, and need to be fleshed out. Yeah, and, and this is true of the, the larger, you know, the larger period. I, I can't think of the last dedicated monograph to the Yen Auerstadt campaign. I mean, it's got, it, is it, it's not Peter, is it? It's been a while. It's been a while. Um, and, and I think that, you know, to go back to the earlier question about other the Other than the one that Chandler wrote in the book on operational art. I can't think of it. We, we need to go back and re-examine this stuff because if we are relying as Napoleonists on Peter... F. Lorraine Peter, whose mm. books are old enough to be on Google Books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Dennis Showalter's chapter in the Peshrift. Uh, right, and that's you know it's you it's know. it's a fa- it's an excellent chapter as as we know of Showalter, but it's not a book. Yeah, and I think if nothing else, we need the you know the Longman type um, campaigns. Yeah. But all of this, but, you know, this is a call for grad students. This people need to be looking at this. People need to. You know, this is not the American Civil War. This is not World War II. These are not areas that are well-trodden. It, despite the fact that they might seem like it, despite the fact that, you know, as Mark quoted at his talk last night, Napoleon is the second most written about person, this stuff is not being written anymore. And yeah. It's, it's a small community. There's another point here, again, for graduate students and scholars that needs to be made. This isn't a Napoleonic example, but for example... For years and years and years, the work of, of Martyr was regarded as authoritative, irreproachable, and final on the issue of the Dreadnought and Jackie Fisher. But when guys like Nicholas Lambert and John Samita went back in and did monographs on the same topic, they discovered all sorts of things, including the fact that Martyr took all of these shortcuts with the scholarship which actually skewed the narrative in a particular way that was very, very unhelpful, particularly when it comes to using military history for what we think it might have some value for, which is gaining insight from military leadership. So I, I would second both Mark and, and Abel here saying, I can't think of a single campaign which probably couldn't use another monograph. I think Mike Legere has done some really fine work on the 1813 campaign. Uh, and, and Alexander Mikabereshta has on the 1812 campaign. But, I mean, there's plenty of other work that needs to be done on those campaigns. For example, the 1812 campaign, we need a monograph on the flanks. The flanks deserve monographs in their own right in the 1812 campaign. They don't get looked at enough. I mean, Napoleon's retreating, right? And he shows up at this river, the Berezina. Hey, where did this Wittgenstein character come from? Who's this Shichigov character? How did they get there? And what happened? You know, and how did all of that happen? And so we don't, so those need, and those are just little, no, no, those are just sidebars, really, of the whole thing that we need more monographs and, and the fields are right. But people need to go back and look at the archival information when they do them. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
the Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What do you see as the biggest gulf between the public's understanding of this period and the scholarly consensus? The mythology that grows up. Uh, the mythology the what I touched on last night was the ogre, you know, for me, the idea that Napoleon is this usurper um, and not a protector of the revolution and also that he is a warmonger who leads Europe. And, and the understanding that this is great power politics. Uh, there are five powers that are balancing off trying to do it. And the problem is France has gotten too powerful. So everyone's going out there and putting it back into a context of what the other powers are trying to do and getting out of it. And so that kind of mythology that comes out and part of it is, is the Napoleonic legend, um, you know, and in part of what he creates himself that allows it to be skewed uh, so much. So well, I, I think uh, I'll give a boring answer, but it's, <laughs> it's the professional one, which is um, I think the biggest, the biggest problem I see is, is a kind of reductionism. We want easy answers. Yeah. We want our characters to be simple. We want Grant to be a drunk. You know, we want Napoleon to be a warmonger. We want Wellington to be a genius. And the problem that we see in, in history, whether it's kind of joke-type history, like drunk history, whether it's more serious, <laughs> almost scholarly history, like a Ron Chernow, I think the problem with all of that is it lacks the context of historiography. So it's really easy to say the British were the second-best army until they beat Napoleon, and then they became the best army. Well, that kind of ignores that they've been getting beaten up and down the subcontinent by the Marathas. Mm -hmm. So by that math, by the transitive property, the Marathas <laughs> are the best army in the world. So and this is a problem This is a problem we face That's here, good. right? So we talk about context. We talk about paradigms. We talk about who's the best army. Okay, we talk about Maurice of Nassau in 1590. Well, who's the best army in Europe in 1590? It's the Ottomans. There is no second place. And there's such a breadth and a depth to history. And... and with Napoleon, luckily, there's a lot written. So you can explore that context. Even if you're just an Anglophone reader, you can find the context. But man, if you go you widen your left-right limits 20 years either way, I mean, I'm a Napoleonist. I know very out. little about like 1820. Um, I, and I think that's the biggest problem I see. It's that people want easy answers. They don't want, hey, go read this stack of 100 books to master an area. They want the Bill O'Reilly, here's, you know... Killing Napoleon. I'm sure it's coming. I don't know. It's probably already being. God, I hope. Sorry. Oh, it's man. probably already being ghostwritten. Uh, See, we'll know we've done it when we end up in the Costco book rack. <laughs> well, well, I tell my wife that's my goal is to get a book in the Costco book rack or any book rack. Yeah, or any book rack. For that I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. There's so many narratives. There's so much mythology out there. You know, and there's the side of me that wants to say, yeah, Abel's right, you know, is a lot of the popular or near popular or kind of, we might call it hybrid popular literature on this topic is so uninformed about the historiography and about the scholarly debates that lie behind a lot of this stuff. 
And again, you're saying, well, does the popular person need to know that, you know, that there's a disagreement here between, you know, Oman and this guy and Napier and, and then Napier and Oman and, and Legier and, and Gerges and Holward and, you know, and I don't think that's the case. But it, what it does for us as a way of kind of helping bridge that scholarly to popular gap is particularly for us here in PME, because the people we're getting are drenched in the popular, and I mean popular culture, pop culture history, okay? You know what Nick Rogers said about this, right? The problem is not that we don't know enough history. The problem is we know too much history, and most of it is wrong. And so what we can do here is a lot of these myths are really easy to demolish, all right? That doesn't mean that's going to get us all the way there to the kind of understanding that maybe we think you know, your Mark One, Mod Zero, senior captain or major should have, but we can kind of demolish some of these myths. The one that we always run into is that this is all Napoleon's doing. Everything is that Napoleon creates the levee en masse. Napoleon creates the combined on division. Napoleon wrote the Reglement of 1791. Napoleon invented the Grebeval system. You know, Napoleon, Napoleon, Napoleon. You know, Wellington invented the reverse slope tactic. So it's really easy to sort of demolish those myths in an environment like this. It's less easy to do that, though, on a broader scale, which is, I think, why one of the reasons we're doing interviews like this. So it's very difficult to do. But it's the good fight, and it's, it's always fun to kind of take somebody's little myth away from them. Usually you have to give them another myth to hang on to, though. <laughs> All right, this one might make you roll your eyes a bit, but I have to ask, who do you think was Napoleon's best marshal? <laughs> I have my answer. I, I have my answer. I've got my answer, too. <laughs> and I'm sure mine is different than theirs. If it's not, I'll be very surprised. Well, I'm just going to go with what Napoleon thought, and that would be Andre Massena. Okay, so I'll just have to go back to what the man thought. And, of course, you two are wrong if it's not. <laughs> okay. The, the guy that I think is underappreciated the most is Gouvion Saint-Cyr. Gouvion Saint-Cyr almost never loses a battle in his entire career. He, because he betrays Ney at the end, though, he's he's kind of regarded as, he doesn't get as much play. But Gouvion Saint-Cyr is a fantastic general. He's a lot like Napoleon. He's very vain. And he's a lot like Wellington, because he plays violin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I This is a pedantic answer, but I'm here for pedantry. And the, the only answer is Davout, because this is... This is mythology. We're back to the mythology. <laughs> this is the problem of presidential rankings. Look at presidential rankings. Who's ranked near the top? Adams and Jefferson. Why? Because of stuff they did before they were president. So why is Messina ranked as the best marshal? Because of what he did before he became a marshal. So, again, it's a pedantic no, 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 answer. No, it's not. a pedantic answer. <laughs> he, is, he is being ranked there because he's the one that Napoleon trusted in, in, in Portugal uh, 1890 campaign when he gets his um, his actual title as the prince uh, of Essling. Na- uh, Napoleon also trusted Ney. And that yeah. generally didn't work out well. Yeah. And, and so my, the reason I would say Davout is, I, and, and this is a fight that Don Horward students and grand students have all the time. The reason I would say Davout is Auerstedt. So Messina has moments of brilliance uh, and his most brilliant moment is prior to his Marshallin career. It's at Second Zurich. Um, but nothing equals what Davout did at Auerstedt. Now, granted, Davout had fantastic subordinates, probably the three best divisional commanders in the army. But 
I don't think you could hand that command to any other marshal. And not only would they successfully hold Auerstedt against the retreating Prussian army, but win. Because Davout had the vision to see that he didn't just have to hold, he had to attack. And his career is one where you really have to pick to find a problem. Now, he may not have been the best marshal in the sense of being an independent commander. I wouldn't have a problem giving that to Messina, but I think given the role of the marshal in the French system, which is to execute his emperor's commands, I, I think I think my answer is that it has to be Davout. Which brings me back to the 1805 campaign in uh, northern Italy, where Messina's fight facing uh, on an independent command with a small French army fighting the main Austrian army, and will push them back uh, continually, but He's given independent commands. If, uh, thank uh, God uh, nobody said Suchet. Okay. If, <laughs> if only a Napoleonist would write a new operational history of that campaign. Yeah. Yes, yeah, there we you go. You know, for the Fest trip, I actually had an entire section on Messina in northern Italy, and I got my chapter was just way too long, and so I had to cut that out, and I really regret it after seeing Kenny Johnson's campaign. Uh, was it 96 pages? No, after I saw that and, and I talked to Mike, he says, oh, you can put it in. Thanks. I <laughs> tossed that whole section. <laughs> well, we've had the helpful caveat from Dr. Abel on reductiveness and looking for easy answers, but with all that in mind, do you see Napoleon more as a hero or a villain? I'll, I'll, I'll do that one. That way I can get it out of the way. If you look at the French state today, it is still very much the state that Napoleon Bonaparte made major institutional reforms and, and actions to create. I probably could use better language than that. So I tend to see, you know, people always, you know, there's this pair Napoleon to Hitler thing and Steve England did a really, really wonderful essay a couple of years ago on sort of the, the banality of trying to do that comparison. But I, I tend to see Napoleon as the tragic hero, as the tragic hero. You heard me last night. Uh, you, I think you probably know clearly right. I mean, if you took away Napoleon and all his military campaigns and just look at his civil accomplishments, and as John pointed out, the Council of State, the prefects, uh, the core comps, all the aspects of the granites of the, of the institutions he creates that still makes up modern France is clearly, uh, clearly the hero. I, I think I, I agree with my <laughs> colleagues. I think it, you, we are all biased. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but I don't think that bias is, is improper, in large part because Napoleon is such a transformative figure. I mean, it's an exaggeration, but Hegel was on to something when yeah. he talked about Napoleon being the Weltgeist. It's that he is so important in the history of Europe. And, you know, the counterargument is, just, just to get it out there, the counterargument is that he was a tyrant, that he was somebody who was controlling. And that's, so, the pushback just a tiny bit on John. Uh, the Napoleon-Hitler comparison works in one regard. They were both people who wanted order. And to them, an ordered state and an ordered people was necessary. So Napoleon came in, he swept away the vestiges of a lot of the old regime in every country he went to. You know, he left, he, he entered Germany with, what, 300-some-odd states, left it with 39. And same thing in Italy. You know, he probably accelerated Italian-German unification by a century. Um, but he also killed a lot of people. And, you know, above and beyond the kind of normal anti-war hand-wringing, Napoleon didn't start all of his wars. Uh, but he started some wars. He didn't have to depose both Spanish kings and take over that kingdom. 
Uh, he didn't have to keep fighting and trying to conquer, and there's all kinds of debates about why he did it. But I, I think, I think he's he's both in a way. He, I, I would describe him to use uh, modern uh, comic criticism. He's an antihero. Uh, we love him. We might love to hate him, but we love him. I come down more on the hero side myself, but I always feel obligated to mention the reimposition of slavery on Haiti. It's hard to reconcile that with the ideals of the French Revolution, unless, of course, you're going back to the middle-class bourgeois property relations, the same thing with the rights of women that goes away uh, with the, the Constitution of Year 8 and, and you know divorce and all those type of things. And it goes back to your point about stability. It's all about stability. And after a society has gone through 10 years of really collapse in war, this desire to have stability at almost any cost. And when someone comes and promises both to take those ideals of the revolution and give you stability and still have the trappings of legitimacy and a, and a democracy, um, I think that is an, an amazingly appealing piece. I, I think also the answer to that question is one that will say a lot about a person's political and maybe even moral convictions. Because Napoleon's the ultimate <clears throat> utilitarian. He, he reimposes slavery, and th- these, are, these are things that maybe the average person may not understand, but he reimposes slavery because France absolutely needs Saint-Domingue. Saint-Domingue is the single most productive colony in the world in the 18th century. They absolutely need the revenues from those plantations. Sugar plantation work, rum manufacturing is incredibly labor-intensive. Now... Does that excuse slavery? Does that excuse chattel slavery? Does that excuse the chattel slavery of the black race? Of course not. But again, Napoleon comes at it from this very utilitarian point of view. And I think the idealist will hate Napoleon. They will find in him an anti-liberal, which is absolutely true. In the modern sense, he is an aggressively anti-liberal person. But the utilitarian will find somebody that they, maybe not a hero, but certainly someone who was effective, if nothing else, which it's utilitarian, right? Last question. Our narrative on the show is headed to Egypt next. Any thoughts on that campaign you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, I just think what a, what a great campaign to see both the military side of Napoleon as well as the scholarly scientific side. And those, those ideals of the French Revolution were really of the Enlightenment being taken and, and again, personified by this one person who can see both the military aspects uh, of it and then the, the promise of reason, logic, and science. I, I think, too, Egypt is such a fascinating place, and it has a fascination for us. One, because Egypt is old. Egypt is the, the oldest coherent society in the world. Two, it's all still there. It's the monuments, the temples, the hieroglyphs, they're all still there. And three, to me, this is the single most important aspect of Egypt. This is why the Romans were afraid of it. This is why everyone wanted to possess it. This is why Alexander had to go to Egypt. Egypt is not where kings are made. Egypt is where gods are made. So when Alexander went... That's a great line. That's good. That's two things I'm going to steal. That That is a great line. When Alexander goes to the monastery at Fayum and he disappears into the Temple of Zeus, he comes out a different person. He has been made a god. He has experienced his apotheosis, and that prepares him to assume the role he's going to have. Napoleon is baptized in the same waters, in the waters of the Nile, 
Napoleon goes to Egypt a man. He is General Bonaparte. He returns from Egypt prepared to become the God Emperor, Napoleon I. Nope. <laughs> That's too eloquent for me to say anything after it. Well, that was a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. If you want to hear more about what these gentlemen have to say about Napoleonic history, I would recommend their books. Dr. Abel has recently published a biography of the Comte de Guibert, the Enlightenment military reformer who we discussed extensively in early episodes of the show. It's called Guibert, Father of Napoleon's Grand Armée. Dr. Kuhn is the author of Napoleonic Warfare, the Operational Art of the Great Campaigns, which is a fantastic survey of Napoleonic strategy. He's also written extensively on the U.S. Navy and the military history of Japan, if that's more your thing. Dr. Gerges is currently working on a book about Wellington's cavalry during the Peninsular War. It's not available yet, but once it is, I will be sure to let you guys know. Until next time, thanks for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.